Joshua chapter 6. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out, none came in. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, uh, then they, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horn before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horn before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the Ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about at once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horn before the ark of the Lord walked on. They blew the trumpets continually. The armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. The second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp. So they did for six days. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city that and all that was in it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourself from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble on it. But all silver and gold, every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout. The wall fell down flat, so the people went up into the city. Every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen and sheep and donkeys with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring her out from there, the woman and all who belonged to her, as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold, the vessels of bronze and of iron, they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. She has lived to, to in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall its foundation be laid. At the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. 
If you go to some churches, you will hear a lot of amens. Uh, that is when the pastor says something uh, that the congregation particularly agrees with, uh, people in the congregation will say amen. And so there are a number of things that maybe people amen to. And whether we say it out loud or not, there are truths, biblical truths, that kind of resound with us, that we kind of say amen in our hearts if we don't say it outwardly. For example, you know, we might think of the truth that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. Amen. That we can cast our cares on God because He cares for us. Amen. Christ loved us so much that He died on the cross for our sins. Amen. When we confess our sins to God, our sins are as far as the east is from the west. Amen. But try this one on. The judgment of God is deserved, complete, and final. When we think about that statement, we're probably not saying amen to that statement. And when we think about that, we maybe feel a little bit of uneasiness in our soul. And I think the reason that we feel that way is because of a psychological principle called cognitive dissonance. And cognitive dissonance states that when people hold kind of two opinions or two opposite beliefs, then there's this kind of tension when you kind of see evidence towards one or the other. So if you have two different beliefs that are inconsistent or seemingly inconsistent, what will happen is you'll often either disregard one or devalue one. Uh, let me put it this way. So imagine that you're told from the time that you're a little kid that the moon is purple. And you've never gone outside, you've never seen the moon. But then one day you go outside and you see the moon and you realize it's not purple. So then you have a decision to make. You're, you're seeing something, but you've been told something else, and so you have to decide, what are you going to believe? And so you might say, well, the people that told me that the moon is purple, they, they must be crazy because I see the moon and it's not purple. Or you might say, well, I, I know that the moon is purple because my family, my friends, they've told me it's purple, and I know I don't see purple, but I must be wrong. There must be something wrong with my eyes. Or we could devalue one piece of information. We could say, well, you know, I know my family told me that the moon is purple, and maybe it's purple if you look in a certain light, and maybe that's what they were talking about. Maybe they didn't mean that it was fully purple, that it was just kind of in that shade of light. And so when we hold things that seem to be inconsistent together, we tend to disregard one or to value one. And specifically in our culture, I think that we tend to, when we have these two tensions, the tension between the love of God and the justice of God, we tend to either disregard or devalue the justice or judgment of God. But that's not the same in every culture. Other cultures actually tend to devalue the love of God. The complete opposite of our culture. Uh, Tim Keller tells a story about a, a woman who came up to him after his service. And uh, she was pretty angry and declared that she believed that the idea of a judging God was kind of abhorrent and offensive to her. Look at how Tim Keller responded. He said, why aren't you offended by the idea of a forgiving God? 
She looked puzzled. Keller says, I continued, I respectfully urge you to consider your cultural location when you find the Christian teaching about hell offensive. He says, I went on to point out that secular Westerners get upset by the Christian doctrines of hell, but they find biblical teachings about turning the other cheek and forgiving enemies appealing. I then asked her to consider how someone from a very different culture sees Christianity. In traditional societies, the teaching about turning the other cheek makes absolutely no sense. It offends people's deepest instincts about what is right. For them, the doctrine of a God of judgment, however, is no problem at all. The society, that society is repulsed by aspects of Christianity that Western people enjoy and are attracted by aspects that secular Westerners can't stand. Further, another story illustrates this fact. Uh, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, Congo, President Mobutu reigned as the supreme dictator from 1965 to 1997. Uh, but after some changes in the political landscape, uh, his regime fell, and the country kind of fell into chaos. A British pastor by the name of Mark Maynell tells a story about his good friend Emma, who was a refugee uh, from the Democratic Republic of Congo. And he had witnessed incredible atrocities uh, committed by this regime and, and by many people in that society. Atrocities that were committed against his family and against his loved ones. He was able to flee east to Uganda, and there he eked out an existence. After a few months, uh, he only had a one-bedroom apartment, no water, no electricity. He had enough money to buy one meal every two days for his family. But he walked by a seminary one day in Uganda, and he felt that God was calling him to ministry. Maynell said that one evening they met in the seminary's tiny library and they started talking. Emma started opening up his life and shared the story of all the injustices and violence that had occurred in his family. And then he started to weep, even though African men uh, never cry in public. And then he, Emma said these sobering words. He said this, You know, Mark, I could never believe the gospel if it were not for the judgment of God. Because I will never get justice in this world. But I couldn't cope if I was never going to see justice done. Manuel commented, We in the West often recoil from God's justice for a very simple reason. We've hardly had to suffer injustice. But most people around the world recognize that God's justice is praiseworthy and great. Of course, his mercy and redemption are even greater, but we need his perfect justice as well. So while not many of us would amen the idea of God's judgment and God's justice, it's something that's in Scripture, and it's something we need to deal with and we need to wrestle with. And we see God's justice in this passage. And we learn that the judgment of God is deserved, complete, and final. But the grace of God is undeserved and available, but temporary. The judgment of God is deserved, complete, and final, yet the grace of God is undeserved and available, but temporary. Let's walk through that statement a little bit. First of, God, of all, the just, judgment of God is deserved. 
Since the beginning of creation, as we know it, there has been a war that has been happening between God and between the forces of evil. And this has started even before known creation began with the enmity between God and Satan. We don't know fully what that looked like. We have some hints in the scripture of what happened to Satan and how he fell. But we don't know exactly how that played out at, before the creation account. But we know that God created the world. He created uh, the Garden of Eden. He put Adam and Eve in this Garden of Eden, which you might also call a kingdom. And he set them up as kind of rulers of that kingdom, that they would govern the created order. And yet Satan entered into that created order, and he led them astray and caused them to disobey God, to miss believe God's motives, to believe that God didn't have his best, their best interests in mind. And so as a result, mankind also became enemies of God. We see this even in the Genesis account. They're expelled from the Garden of Eden. And what happens? God puts a flaming sword at the entrances to the Garden of Eden so that no one can pass through to enter into the Garden of Eden. And we see after this that mankind multiplies, but as they multiply, also their evil multiplies. We see the first murder where Cain murders Abel. By the time of Noah, we see that in the, in the text of Genesis chapter 6, it says that every intention of man's heart was evil continually, that the earth was filled with violence. And so God brought judgment upon the people of that day, and the only ones who were saved was Noah and his family. After that... God started anew with Noah, and they reproduced and became uh, numerous, and then God scattered them in the incident in the Tower of Babel. And then after some time, God made a covenant with a man named Abraham. And through Abraham, God was going to kind of, uh, that Abraham was going to be his representatives on the earth. God promised Abraham he'd become a great nation, that all the nations of the world would through, be blessed through him, and ultimately that salvation would come through him. They started to become, become numerous, and then they moved to Egypt, and while they were in Egypt, a new pharaoh came into command who didn't know uh, Joseph and his whole family, and so they became slaves in Egypt as they became numerous. And remember what God did through Moses. Moses told or God told Moses, go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. That was the repeated refrain. Let my people go. And in that statement, there's a claim of sovereignty. And Pharaoh says, no, I'm not going to let your people go. And in doing that, he's saying, they're not your people, they're my people. I decide if they go, I decide if they stay. They are my slaves. And yet God demonstrates that the people of Israel belong to him. And so he brings the plagues upon the Egyptians. And he, again, he does war with the forces of evil and brings the Israelites out into the wilderness. Then because of the Israelites' sin, they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And then we're at the precipice of entering into the promised land. And we looked last week about how the commander of the army of the Lord comes up to Joshua and he's ready to fight for them. And so they're about to enter into the promised land that God, that God had promised to Abraham hundreds of years prior. But as they're about to enter into the land and defeat the inhabitants of the land, we might have a tendency to maybe feel sorry for the people in Jericho, for the Canaanites. You know, they're all shut up in, the, in this uh, city. 
nobody's going in, nobody's going out, and we might be tempted to think, why are these Israelites coming in and destroying these innocent people just to take their land? But that wasn't the case at all. See, back in Genesis chapter 15, when God made this covenant with Abraham, he made, something, he made a statement to Abraham that's pretty interesting. In Genesis 15, 15 to 16, it says, As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. We're talking about the Amorites. The Amorites are sometimes interchanged with the people of Palestine, which could also be the Canaanites. And so God shows Abraham the land of Canaan. And so what he's saying or seems to be saying is, okay, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation, but your descendants aren't going to be able to enter into the promised land right away. And the reason is, is I'm not going to kick these people out of the land unless they really deserve it. If they don't deserve it, I'm not going to remove them from the land. So I'm going to wait until their sin is complete when they're so bad that I need to remove them from the land. In Leviticus chapter 18, we see a number of prohibitions that are given to the people of Israel. They're to abstain from things like bestiality, homosexuality, incest, adultery, uh, from sacrificing their children uh, on an altar and murdering them. And the text in Leviticus 18 continues with something insightful for our purposes. It says, Do not make for yourself make yourselves unclean by any of these things. For by all these things the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean, and the land become unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. So that the text tells us that the people of the land, the Canaanites, are doing these types of things. Bestiality, insects, incest, adultery, homosexuality, child sacrifice. And that's the reason that they're being judged. Look again at Deuteronomy 9.5. God says, Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going to possess the land, their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So it's clear in this battle that God is not judging an innocent people. He is judging people who are guilty before him. And he has shown his grace and been patient with them. The promise that was given to to, to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 15, this is about 800 years after that. So he's given them 800, 600 to 800 years of grace. And now finally he's bringing his judgment upon the people of Canaan. And this is a judgment that, again, is deserved. We see also that the judgment of God is complete. All of the Canaanites will be destroyed. One of the most interesting features of this passage is the repetition of the number seven. We see seven priests who carry seven horns. On the sixth, they march around the city for six days, and then on the seventh day, they march around seven times. And the number of seven is significant in Scripture, and the most notable uh, use of this number seven is in the creation account, where God creates the earth in six days. He rests on the seventh day. And so the number seven is often connoted as fullness or completion. 
And I believe the reason that the number seven is used so prominently in this passage is to demonstrate that the full judgment of God is coming upon the Canaanites. These Israelites are acting as the representatives of God to bring judgment upon the Canaanites. And so they're going to be uh, what is called in Hebrew harem. They're to be devoted to destruction. They're to be destroyed. Now the text tells us again that all were destroyed in the city, men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. Anyone who's a Canaanite is destroyed. Anyone who hasn't put his or her faith in the God of Israel is destroyed. Now we might have trouble with that as Westerners as we read this story and see how all of them were destroyed, but there's a few things that we can think about in that regard. First of all, in that culture, in that time frame, there was this kind of corporate consciousness where you didn't really separate people into different classes. You didn't separate men and women uh, and children and kind of different individualities. They were all one. They were all part of one family unit. We see, second, that this was only a command that was given to uh, Israel for the people in Canaan. It wasn't a command that they were to destroy everybody in every city around. It was only the people that God was judging and the people that he's judging for a specific purpose. And third, think about it this way. I mean, imagine that the United States is in a war with a foreign power. And this foreign power is, is, is wreaking havoc on our country. And day after day, our country is being bombed and there's explosions, and there's thousands and thousands of people dying. And to fight back, it will mean that we'll, we need to attack their ammunition reserves. But to do that, if we're going to drop bombs over there, it's going to result in some casualties. Now, in that situation, if, we're inf if they're inflicting many casualties on us, most of us would say, okay, it's morally justifiable that it, we don't want it to happen, but it needs to happen if we're going to win this war. And in the same way, in a sense, Israel is acting in self-defense. Every chance that the Israelites get, and we'll see this later in Israel's history, every chance that they get to follow after other gods, they go for it. If there's anybody left, they'll intermarry with them, take on their, gar their gods, and become like them. And so the fact that they're completely destroyed prevents this from happening. So the judgment of God is deserved, it's complete, and that anyone who is a Canaanite is destroyed. And third, the judgment of God is final. Verse 26 says, Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. God has place this final judgment on Jericho, that it will not be rebuilt, and that it will serve as a reminder of the judgment of God and of the power of God. So God's judgment is deserved, complete, and final. But we also see that there's grace, that God gives grace that's undeserved, that's available, but it's temporary. We've seen already that God waited six to eight hundred years before he destroyed the Canaanites. We see even in that that it's not all Canaanites that are destroyed, that there's exceptions. Rahab, the prostitute, someone who's insignificant by the world's standards, probably very poor, she's saved because of her faith in the God of Israel, along with her whole family. 
And I think the story of the, of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is insightful for our purposes here. Remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. God kind of hints at the fact that he, to Abraham that he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham says, will you, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? He says, suppose there's 50 people left in the city. Will you spare the city if there's 50 people left that are righteous? God says, yes, I'll spare it for 50. Then Abraham says, so, so suppose there's 45. Will you spare it for 45? God says, yes. He says, suppose there's 40. Suppose there's 30. Suppose there's 20. Suppose there's just 10. And God says, yes, if there's only 10, I still will spare the city. But there weren't even 10 people in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. So what does God do? He only spares Lot, who is the righteous one. And he spared him on behalf of Abraham. We see in the story of Jonah, Jonah was told to go to Nineveh, which was a very wicked Assyrian city. And he says, go and preach judgment to them. And they repented. And God stayed off his judgment. So I can say on the testimony of Scripture that if the people in Jericho, if the Canaanites would have repented, God would have given them grace. And they had six to eight hundred years to do that. Rather than being afraid of the God of Israel, rather than trying to fight against Him, if they would have joined the God of Israel, they would have been saved. That's what Rahab did. She was a Canaanite, but became an Israelite. She forsook her allegiance to her foreign gods and to her own people and followed the God of Israel, and she was saved. Now this story, the story of the fall of Jericho, is a story that is a historical story, something that happened. But I believe it also points forward. I believe it also is a picture, like many things in Joshua, to the judgment that God is going to bring one day. We see something similar in the book of Revelations. And we see the repetition again of the number seven when God brings judgment upon the earth. Note what it says in Revelation chapter 15. It says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. Then in the next chapter, again, it talks about the seven bowls of God's judgment, the completeness of God's judgment. It's clear in Scripture that there is a judgment that's coming against evil. That there will be one final battle where God once and for all defeats the forces of evil. And we're told in, that, in, in the scripture that that judgment will be deserved. In Romans chapter 2, verses 6 to 9, it says, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing see for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but, but obey righteous, unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. So his judgment will be just. His judgment will be deserved. We see second that his judgment will be complete. All people who have not put their faith in trust in Christ will be harem. They will be devoted to destruction. Revelations chapter 20 verse 15 says... If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And we see finally that the judgment of God will be final. 
Matthew 25, 41 says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me. You cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Be final, eternal. The judgment of God is deserved, complete, and final. But also, there's grace. There's also grace. And I find that the curse that Joshua proclaims is rather interesting. Again, look at the curse that he proclaims. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation. And at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. That was the cost of rebuilding Jericho. That was the cost of rebuilding what God had cursed. The cost of rebuilding what God had cursed was the firstborn, the youngest son. That's what Jesus was. He was the firstborn of God. And God sent His only Son who, to save us. Ephesians says that we are by nature children of wrath, that we're under the curse of God. And so God sent His Son to rebuild what had been cursed, to rebuild those who had been enemies of His so that we could have salvation, so that we could know Him. And Jesus experienced harem. He experienced being devoted to destruction. Just like the Canaanites were devoted to destruction, He was devoted to destruction so that we could have life, so that we could be saved from the wrath to come. What an amazing truth that is. That we can be saved even though it's not deserved. That anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, it says in Romans, shall be saved. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, it's available, it's here. Anyone who puts their faith and trust in Jesus can be saved. But the Scriptures also tell us that it's temporary. His grace is temporary and the time is short. Second Peter, Peter tells us, The Lord is not so slow to fulfill His promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. You see, just like God waited six to eight hundred years to destroy the Canaanites, He's waiting. He's waiting to come back because He's waiting for some of us to turn our lives over to Him because He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If you're here and you're a believer, this message of God's justice should do two things for us. Number one, it should be a comfort in that one day God will come back and He will right all wrongs. He will defeat the forces of evil once and for all. The injustice of exploitation, greed, sex trafficking, oppression, all of those things will one day be no more. And so the justice of God is a comfort in that sense. But secondarily, the judgment of God also ought to sober us. It ought to grieve our hearts for those who are not going to make it. Even God, it says in the Scripture, is grieved at the judgment of sinners who don't turn to Him. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23 says this, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. It grieves God's heart, and He's patient, waiting for us, waiting for those of us who haven't accepted Him to turn to Him. 
And for those of us who are believers, the fact of God's judgment ought to make us fervent in prayer, praying for those who are lost, also reaching out to those who are lost and helping them get ready for the judgment of God. The day is coming. God is coming back. Jesus came as a baby, but he will come back on a horse with a sword. He will come back to judge the living and the dead. If you're here and you've never entered into a relationship with Christ, you can come to know him today. You can be saved from the wrath to come. God is not willing that you should perish, but that you should come to know him and spend forever in his presence in joys that are unspeakable. That's his heart. That's his desire for you. The question is, are you going to turn your life over to him? I'd like to close by reading a portion of one of the most famous sermons ever given in American history. It was given by a man named, by the name of Jonathan Edwards. Near the conclusion of his message, he said this, And now you have an extraordinary opportunity, a day wherein Christ has flung the door of mercy wide open and stands in the door calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners. A day wherein many are flocking to Him and pressing into the kingdom of God. Many are daily coming from the east, west, north, and south. Many that very, were very lately in the same miserable condition that you are in are now in an, un, now in an happy state with their hearts filled with the love to Him that has loved them and washed them for their sins in His own blood and rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. How awful it is to be left behind at such a day to see so many others feasting while you are pining and perishing, to see so many rejoicing and singing for joy of heart while you have caused a mourn for sorrow of heart and howl for vexation of spirit. How can you rest one moment in such a condition? He concludes this way, Therefore, let everyone that is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. The wrath of Almighty God is now undoubtedly hanging over a great part of this congregation. Let everyone fly out of Sodom. Haste and escape for your life. Look not behind you. Escape to the mountain lest you be consumed. Ladies and gentlemen, the judgment of God is coming. Are you ready to meet God? And if you are ready, are you doing everything that you can to help those around you be ready to meet God? The judgment of God is deserved, complete, and final, but the grace of God is undeserved and available, but temporary. Let's pray together. If you're here and you've never entered into a relationship with Christ, if you don't know, if you died today, where you would spend eternity, the Scripture is very clear that we can come to know Christ by faith, that we can have the assurance that we'll spend forever with Him, that we can be saved by the wrath to come. The way that the Bible tells us to do that is to trust in Him, to put our faith in Him, to put our weight of who we are into His hands, to follow Him. If you're here and you've never done that today, I'd like to give you an opportunity to do that. And if you'd like to enter into a relationship with Christ and know Him today, you might say a prayer after me. It's not a magical prayer. It's not something that saves you. It's just an expression of your heart to God, an expression of your faith to God and entering into a relationship to Him. If you'd like to do that today, just say something in your heart silently like this. 
God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I've fallen short of everything that you've told me to do. God, I believe that because of my sin, I deserve to be separated from you. I deserve to be devoted to destruction. But I believe that your grace is greater. I believe that you sent your Son to become sin for me. To take my place. To experience death for me. So that I could have life in you. I'm asking you today to come into my life. To make me new. And give me the strength to follow you with everything that I am. In Jesus' name. God, we thank you for your love today. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that while we were yet sinners, you came to die for us. We thank you that you are a God of justice, that you will one day come back and right all wrongs. But we thank you that you sent your son so that we wouldn't have to experience death, so that we wouldn't have to experience destruction. God, I pray for anyone here who doesn't know you, whether they prayed that prayer or not. God, I pray that you draw them to yourself.